I, I assume it's a sports reference, probably. <laughs> Most things we talk about are. I've never on talked about anything apart from podcast. The only thing I eat are sports biscuits as well, which explains a lot, really. But <laughs> but yeah, I don't do anything that's not related to sport. I I just talk about sport, and I only ever eat start Kellogg's start for breakfast. <laughs> Surely that's a discontinued cereal. You think so? They're actually really nice, but I think it is discontinued now. The thing is, if that was made by like someone, if like, someone worked at Kellogg's cereals and they were from Cardiff, and they said, it's going to be called Kellogg's Start. Kellogg's Start. Start your morning. And people think, no, I, I, no we're not going to call it that. No. I can't stand to hear Let's that. Let's begin instead. <laughs> um, so, uh, moving away from attacking my nation, um, we've got... Um, Let's start the podcast, and I have got a few. I I gotta say that when I make the lists for this podcast, I'm always quietly impressed with some of the total shash I make my way through without vomiting blood all over pictures of my family. Because, but it's not as bad this week. Um, there's some there's some tasty ones in here, some unusual ones. So, mm. I have got Freeway, Edmund, Crooked House, Desperado. Freaks and Sanctimony, which obviously you partook in as well. I'm assuming Freaks is not the Todd Browning version from 1920. Whatever, <laughs> That that film, my brother Transvaal, it was hated that film. The end. Have you seen that film? Uh, no. Apparently, the ending of it genuinely, like, really cut him to the core. Like, really, genuinely traumatized him. Such horrific scenes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I've I've never seen it. No, but, I don't particularly want. To, I just, it sounds like it may be dated in some ways because it was it was directed by Todd Browning, but it was actually written by his brother Gravy, wasn't it? Wow, <laughs> it's like Gravy um, Browning. Yeah. All oh, right. Um, I thought you didn't understand. No, I did. That's the last words to me. <laughs> um, so maybe the line went bad or something. <laughs> the line went bad when I was talking to him face to face. Um, so, what have you got for this this week? Well, uh, I watched a couple of the ones that you recommended last time: oh, "Strip nice. to Kill" and "VFW." Um, but new ones I watched are "The Legend of Boggy Creek," oh, uh, "Bliss," "Batman Forever," "Batman and Robin," "Ma." The Transporter, A Dangerous Place, Showdown, and Tough Turf. <laughs> you know that you can watch whatever films you want. You don't have to watch. You don't have to watch horrible ones. You can. Yeah. There is. It's, just much, it's supposed to be having fun, Rupert. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's some. Uh, there are some questionable choices on here. But when you were well, talking about like how you you get through this stuff. Um, yes, you get to the end without vomiting blood of a picture of your family. Uh, it does, yes, apply to my list. I think this time. So, um, do you want to? Oh, go on. Sorry. Well, I was just. I'll. I'll just kick off just by going through the ones very quickly. The ones that you recommended last time: Strip to Kill, and VFW. Strip to Kill was pretty good. Surprisingly. Yeah, yeah. And it was really quite competently made. And like you said, there's kind of genuine talent and artistry in the dancing. And to be yeah. fair, it's. It's made quite clear that there's a distance of like five feet from the audience, and there's no tips exchanged, so it's it's not actually a very seedy strip bar, uh, strip club. Um, 
uh, yeah, and uh, there was sort of a genuine rapport between the two main cops, which I quite liked. Did you and think it looked like Greg Bierko as well? Yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I've made that in my notes, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the script wasn't too bad, and the performances weren't that good, but I guess a lot of them were genuine dancers, so... Um, but it was quite an intriguing plot, so it's worth a watch. It's the kind of thing you'd skip past on Amazon Prime, but actually it's all right. Yeah, it's because it, I think the cover from memory is like really sort of exploitative and lurid. Oh, yeah. And the way it describes it, it's like a load of someone is hunting strippers. Yeah. And you just think, oh, yeah, skip. But then you watch it and think, oh, she's pretty tasty. Yeah. Um, the other one was VFW, which is, is on Netflix. And um, yeah. It, at the start, the text suggests that it's actually in the future, yet the aesthetic is kind of 80s or early 90s, isn't it? So, yeah. I, but yeah, I suppose it's just a timeless thing. Um, so this was one about the basically the um, drug dealers gang attacking this bar full of ex um, veterans, yeah. and um, yeah, I really like the vibe. It's very, it's sort of hyper masculine, yet essentially decent and dutiful people so and there was a believable camaraderie i guess because they're just old timers really um and the (laughs) the the gore factor was astonishing it was so violent at times Uh, but it's sort of over the top enough to be funny it isn't like viciously cruel or anything of course it's sat over one night neon lighting synth soundtrack and stephen lang so i don't really see what else you need in a film yeah it's um I like the way that it set, said that it's set in the future, and I'm just thinking about what Stephen Lang wore, which is a black cotton beanie hat, denim sort of cut-off waistcoat with like an undershirt and and a black jumper. It's not particularly futuristic clothing, is it? It wasn't really. It'd be a silver <laughs> jumpsuit. It was really in the future. <laughs> yeah, if it was real future, they'd have like foil cones on their heads. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm glad you liked those. Yes, yeah, they were good. They were good. Um, yeah, so how many do you have overall? Because I've got quite a few. Of course, probably yeah. about eight or nine. Um, I've got, you better kick off them because I've, yeah. I've got, like, was it one, one, two, three, four, five, six? And one of them we've both seen. I, and I, I think you've seen the first one I'll mention then, which is The Legend of Boggy Creek, oh, um, which was, is from can, 1972. Can I, before you carry on, I have to say this because my brother yeah. Transvaal, this is his go to. Um, go to like worst film, like a genuine like the worst film I've ever seen, and I watched it with him a very long time ago. Um, he's seven years younger than me, and so he's forty-seven. <laughs> and I was, <clears throat> and I remember my whoops, shit, my memories of this film are a load of men walking through like a swamp, and then they shoot a dog, and at the end some bushes rustle, and they look at each other and says, "Oh, the legend is true." That that if this yeah. is that film, that's all I remember. I, I, it's, it could be that film. If that, it's believable that you'd think that was all you remembered because really nothing much does happen in the film. Oh, okay. um, <clears throat> a bit of context here. Um, this, this was made in 1972 and it's, um, and, and I know that whenever anyone brings up online, the, the, the idea that Blair Witch Project was a kind of watershed moment in the faux documentary genre, or otherwise now now known as found footage um there'll always be someone who like refers back to an earlier example and it's usually cannibal holocaust but then sometimes they may mention the legend of boggy creek because of course it is a photo documentary 
by which I mean it's got really, really tedious, endless um, voiceover uh, narration and some badly acted um, like reconstructions. So, but what um, <laughs> the problem is is that because what Blair the Blair Witch Project did so well was it created its own reality, like it was meant to be all like filmed um, sort of on camcorders and stuff. Yeah. Um, the problem with well, Cannibal Holocaust and Boggy Creek is that they're um, they're kind of well, Holocaust was a, a movie of two really awkward halves, if you like, because it had it it was one part a kind of OTT dramatization, and then the other part was found footage, so that was awkward anyway. And then Boggy Creek does the Blair Witch thing as the filmmakers hiring locals, but <clears throat> I don't see the point of hiring locals if you're then not going to pretend it's real because they've hired locals but then done like things which are not even meant to be real like clearly reconstruction so it just seems pointless it's like putting non-actors in a feature film basically um i'm wondering if this kind of harks back to a pre-digital time when documentaries were more likely to feature (laughs) reconstructed footage anyway so it'd be more in line with the kind of documentaries you might see back then i don't know but anyway um it yeah so it, the the idea is is that it's it's set in i want to say mississippi anyway somewhere with loads of swamps and um it's basically just like it's telling the story interminably telling the story of these locals and it keeps going about how these different hunters and stuff believe they've seen this creature um in in the woods in the swamps um the creature is it's quite well done at the start because it's just you just see a kind of vague large shaggy shape really um but it basically you realize uh, that after about 80 minutes that you, you're never actually going to see it do anything to anyone really it's just going to sort of be stand in front of people and scare that scare them and there's this is awful sequence where there's like there's these three girls in this house like being terrorized and it's the house starts shaking like there's someone something trying to get in and you think oh god well, you know which who's going to get who's going to get dragged through the window or whatever oh, no one does in fact what happens is the scene ends and then the narrator says oh the monster attacked the house and upturned all the flower pots what that's it. That's all he says. He just says. So you don't even sit. It's pure tell, telling, not showing sort of thing. And he's, he just tells us that these up to, we don't even see the flower pots. So you don't it's even just, get the thrill of seeing the flower pots being turned over. You don't see the flower pots upended. No. <laughs> that um, is tame. <laughs> it's so tame. Wrong, but this film is rated 18, isn't it? I possibly I don't know it just if it is then it's because no one's watched it in ages to to recertify it but um it's basically the kind of Sasquatch myth but I mean there are scarier kind of urban um legend type things on YouTube to be honest these days uh, I I think it's quite unlikely to satisfy a modern horror fan because I think part of it is because it's it's just too distant from the kind of old tradition of oral storytelling um which because now it's all about visuals and stuff and i I don't think that anyone's going to find it that interesting just to hear a story told with some bad um badly reconstructed footage over the top um i'm pretty sure we didn't watch the same what's the the last 
last shot of this film is it like them looking like over like um like a waterfall swamp thing at some bushes rustling no i think you may have watched a different there are a I've few seen, different yeah i think i've watched a different like film with a very similar title it doesn't sound like it's any better or worse to be honest but um yeah i mean at the end of this it does turn into a bit more of a conventional kind of cabin in the woods thing where uh, a family is being kind of attacked um and it's reaching through the windows and stuff but but I, the I flower checked... pots must have been everywhere in that <laughs> oh yeah they scene. were completely smashed some of them but <laughs> um <laughs> but some i did them. check it out right and and of course this was 1972 right george romero had made the night of the living dead four years before this yeah. and for a very similar budget about about a hundred thousand something and like the gulf between the quality of the work just the direction the editing the atmosphere and everything is just it's ridiculous and so there's no excuse really it's just bad it's a bad isn't this like a relatively well-regarded movie though i wonder if it's maybe it's regarded as um historically important in this particular horror subgenre because i don't know how many faux horror documentaries have been before this but I guess it had to start somewhere. Um, yeah. And and it's the kind of thing that I was thinking, it literally can't be made today or can't be made to work today in any way because cause so many of the early scenes, especially, rely on the very low resolution image. Like in order to like see the thing from afar but not really know what it is, to have any sense of mystery, it has to be extremely low resolution, really fuzzy. So couldn't really be made today. And nor should it, okay? <laughs> I just think I just have the mental image in my head of what you just said there of, of going into you know uh, like a, like a library of films of historical importance and then like the, the sort of usher saying and down here we've got the the section of films that are regarded as whilst being historically important are also crap and then you're like oh and then there's, but there's just one film on the shelf down there <laughs> yes so is it the legend of boggy the legend of boggy creeks there's a legend of boggy creek 2 the return to the legend of boggy creek there's all these very similar titles and so this it, is yeah. I don't know why it keeps being remade. I guess it's a, it's a bit like Swamp <laughs> Thing or something. But it's just it's not even that interesting a story. It's just like a kind of swamp-based Sasquatch film. That's all it is. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, that was rubbish. Okay. But vaguely interesting from a historical perspective. Fair enough. Um, shall I dive into one? Crack on. <clears throat> so I the first the. Well, yeah, the film I watched um, so the longest ago, like a week, was a film from 1996 called Freeway with um, <clears throat> Reese Witherspoon, Keeper Sutherland, and obviously Bokeem Woodbine. And this, this, they really hammer home the fact that this is kind of a modern telling of the Little Red Riding Hood story. Uh, like to the point that the whole introduction is like a load of still cartoon images of Red Riding Hood over some obviously like 90s music. Um, Reese Witherspoon is young in it. She is young! And she, her boyfriend is Bakeem Woodbine and the story is that she is uh, she is kind of from a really, Amanda Plummer's her mum and she's just very clearly a prostitute and her stepfather's kind of abusing her and she comes from this like really broken home, like at the start, it's quite a depressing scene actually where they're all tearing a load of like Bukim Woodbine, they're in this in this school, but it's clearly like a um, like a foundation kind of level school for people who obviously have 
are completely literate and they're all kind of streetwise kids but they're just like literally reading like the cat sat on the mat and struggling with that sentence that kind of level and it's actually done quite well but there's no like jeering or gum chewing they're actually like quite supportive of each other because i think they come from such broken backgrounds that it's just glad to get any kind of education um and so what happens then is her parents get taken into sort of she, you know, taken away she gets put into care but she escapes and she just wants to drive across country to visit her grandmother and just try and have some kind of decent life with her um and the backdrop of this is obviously like a really hot la in the summer and uh Kiefer sutherland um plays a sort of uh, a serial killer that prowls the titular freeway for young women to to sort of molest and kill yeah. <clears throat> so it's a PG. So I was watching it and it's a weird one because the whole thing, the whole film is like, there's, there's like, no, it's a very hopeless film. Even though Reese Witherspoon's character is quite like, like a kind of bubbly Southern sort of gal. Um, and she's very, very um, sharp. She's got like a real sort of um, social sharpness, although she's not educationally sharp. So she's kind of very quick witted in certain situations. And, like she she says to Bikin Woodbine, like I'm gonna find my grandmother. Um and he like wishes her the best, gives her like a gun to pawn when she gets there so she can have a bit of money. And then she's like, Oh yeah, I'm gonna visit my grandmother, you know, and they kind of oh, I'll see you soon. And then the second, the second she turns the corner, he just gets shot and killed like pointlessly by like just a gang member sort of thing, just boom, dead. And and there's a lot of that in the film. Like these little sub characters you get introduced to, there's just there's just this real sort of overarching sense of hopelessness about everyone's life in the film Jeez. and so yeah so it takes a bit of a turn so about I, I was watching it with Faye and it got to about like half hour in and something happens I could be spoilerish but there's there's no point in spoiling it if you know what I mean right. something happens and I thought oh it's going to be one of those films where you know she gets in the car and it's kind of like the hitcher thing mm. where it's it's like a effectively a road chase movie which I really enjoy uh, but it it take it doesn't do that. It covers a lot of ground in the space of the ninety minutes, mm. um, and it keeps on kind of it, because it's billed as a black comedy. But it's one of those black comedies where you think the humor is is very dark and and to the point. And it reminded me a little bit of very bad things, where mm. the humor is actually a little bit unpleasant, and actually in some parts right. quite unpleasant. You know, like the the things that the film is like sort of asking you to laugh at you think no, that's, just, that's just really that's just really sad actually that's just mm. a, that's really unfortunate um so there's a bit of that it was entertaining um right. but it is it's not a particularly pleasant film and right. it's oddly and like although it tries to have this kind of through line of sort of zaniness and you know oh you know she's she's just a bit thick and getting herself into these wild scrapes is actually oddly depressing um it's quite so, a hard balance yeah, and it doesn't pull it off, but it's not a bad film. It's almost like um, it, it, that balance. It's not a bad film, but that weird balancing act that it fails at stops it from being a good film. Mm. There's a lot of films in the 90s which failed to get that balance right post Tarantino. Yes. You know? uh, and yeah, and they, they could come across as just a bit tasteless and needlessly cruel. Yeah, cruel is cruel is the word, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a re- really, really young um, Brittany Murphy in it as well. It's one of those films where people keep popping up. And you think I know you, but they're so young that you kind of barely re- recognise them. Um, um, yeah. So, is it worth a watch? What do you yes. watch it on? Uh, 
telly. Uh, no, I watched it. It's on Amazon Prime. Right. Um, so I'm finding Amazon Freeway, Prime a bit of a... Not 96. to be confused with Free Jack with Mick Jagger. <laughs> or New Jack City. <laughs> or the house that Jack built. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah. Um, and, Is yeah, Reese so Witherspoon good on it? That must have been just pre-election, maybe. Or was it? I well, don't the election know. was 99. I yeah. watched the film last... last time we did this podcast i watched reese witherspoon in a film which was 98 uh twilight which is oh, yeah. really i forgot to say there's like a really lengthy topless scene with her in it which she's obviously attractive but it, it was bizarre because i don't yeah. associate reese witherspoon with that kind of thing and she, no but i suppose it's really early in her career but yeah in, i think if this was 96 so she must have been like 20 or something and um it could be her first film actually she, she seems really young in it but yeah. she is good. She is good in it. Uh, she's kind of the, the character she plays. This kind of feisty, ditzy character, like a dark past. Like there's no, there's no real bad acting in it. it and the thing is, the film is filmed in such a way, like a kind of, like kind of off kilter zany way that it, you wouldn't really notice anyway. Yeah, it can kind of obscure um, <clears throat> those. Uh, like certain performances can be shrouded in the zaniness, I guess. Zaniness. Yeah. Let's word. never call anything zany. Not even Zane even Zane Golf on the Mega Drive. <laughs> we can't even mention Zane Low, which we always do. Um, well, it'd be Zane Malik, I suppose, these days for the kids. Um, right. Um, so I'll move on to Bliss. This was the film because I liked VFW so much. Uh, I checked out what else Joe Bagos had done. Bagos, Bagos, um, and he'd done this film called Bliss. Which is, I, it's a bit confusing as to when it was released because I don't know whether it took a while to get distribu- uh, distribution. But it's it's first film, I guess. Then, if that was the case, I think so. Yeah, um, I think when he gets more famous, which he will because he's very talented, then I think maybe it will become more clear. Um, but yeah, this was I watched this on Shudder via Prime. Um, so this is a about a young artist lady and she has this creative block she has to complete this painting um and she's got this creative block and she's but she's going off the rails with like kind of frustration and uh and kind of this like pent-up anger um she starts doing this drug this very serious drug called bliss naturally um anyway she kind of enters basically a world of vampires really that's essentially what it's about. It really it's a, a kind of descent into madness. And uh, I suppose it could be argued that there's some ambiguity about how much of it is real uh, and how much of it is just madness. But but it is essentially just a really, really ultra violent um, vampire movie, quite slow burning for the first bit. But my God, when it kicks off, it really kicks off. And um <laughs> Yeah, it, it's got this kind of like... It's, it sounds like it has the similar sort of beats to, to VFW then. Well, sort of, in a way, in that it is a bit of a throwback. This one's more of a throwback to kind of um, uh, the grimy, kind of grindcore, um, early 80s horror. It had a real driller killer vibe, especially in the early scenes, because there's a lot of like dingy oh, rock clubs like playing really Rick and Ripper, yeah, that kind of thing, right? Playing okay. really doomy metal, and um, and there's sort of like bad sound quality and quite rough photography. There's a bit of a trippy Gaspar Noé vibe 
going on with some spinning camera and, and some weird sex. Um, but I, uh, yeah, the name of uh, my two hamsters actually. <laughs> um, yeah, it's um, it is quite different to VFW, although it does have a certain, it does share a similar kind of distaste for young hipsters. Um, they yeah, they he's are not young. Keen on them, is he? No, they, these guys are young, but they do occupy occupy a really seedy underworld. Um, the um, so the vampire stuff is some really good practical gore effects and oh, it's nice. it's more like kind of cannibalism really like it's not just biting a neck it's like tearing a neck out sort of thing i mean there's there's one book she 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 stabs someone in the eye and then sucks the blood from his convulsing skull it's just horrendous um yeah so there's some good it's good <clears throat> stuff um it's a really full-on performance from the main lady I, i'm not sure of the actress's name but she's really good um and very kind of like uh honest and naked in more than one sense of the word i mean she'll just spend a lot of the time just naked just drenched in blood um and she does the madness descent into madness pretty well so um yeah and by the time she's kind of smeared herself in blood to finish the painting and the, the kind of the souls of the damned are clawing at her legs you're kind of on board with her really um okay. yeah so i suppose it's about it's about the kind of anguish of creativity and um, and kind of the passion uh, as in the original meaning of passion to mean suffering. So um, it's also about going through a, a quite a lot of internal turmoil in order to find some kind of serenity and satisfaction on the other side, like what you go through to create a work of art, but then the satisfaction afterwards, if you like. Um, and I, I, I got the sense that in the end he's saying something about the respect that we show art or lack of it because like real art, even kind of bad art does have toil and effort and sacrifice behind it. And it, you know, it takes two seconds to slaughter a work of art, but it might have taken someone weeks or months or years to kind of realize. So I think there's definitely, there's probably a parallel process going on here. Uh, about getting this small film made and the kind of effort of getting it off the ground, I suspect. But uh, it's, um, yeah, it's a really interesting film. Well, it does sound quite full on. Yeah, I'm up for that. Yeah, it is very full on and quite trippy. And yeah, it's like VFW. It is a a bit of a throwback stylistically, but it, it is its own thing. It's its own story. So yeah, that's definitely recommended. It's called Bliss. And it's on Shudder via Prime. Wow. Um, leading on from that, uh, the, no, the next one I've got here is, again, on Amazon Prime. And it's a film I'm sure I saw before when it first came out, probably like on Sky or something, um, called Edmund. Uh, I, I don't think you've seen this one. Not yet. This is on my <clears throat> watch list. So it's William H. Macy, Booking Woodbine. Again, good. I like seeing that man in films. And it's it's effectively um, kind of reminiscent of Fallen Down. I think Fallen Down was, I want to say, 96. Is that right? That seems right. I would say a little earlier. I think 93. Yeah, that's what I said, 93. Um, so, it was re- uh, so this was released in 2005, so it's way after it. But it is kind of, it is very reminiscent of Falling Down in that it's kind of a man rejecting societal norms and just kind of almost acting on not so much yeah, well, I suppose in Falling Down Michael Douglas is kind of f- actively like fighting back against the system whereas 
in Edmund, it's much more kind of internalized. It's much more. Um, he he is just just reacting exactly spontaneously how he wants to, and just say you know not holding back on what he wants to say or do. Just just doing them and acting completely on impulse. So um, it's a little bit different in that way. But so it's William H Macy, and at the start he goes to in and I think it's interesting. The film starts like this. It just starts with him outside a fortune teller, <clears throat> and he goes in to see the fortune teller, and she, through the usual, well, let's just call it what it is, complete and total bollocks, tells him, um, you know, oh, you're not, you're not leading the life you should live. You should be doing something else. And he mm-hmm. takes that to mean that, you know, he's this kind of successful kind of middle management thing who lives with his wife. And he just says, I don't love you anymore, and I'm leaving. And he just literally just like ups and leaves. And he goes to a bar. That's quite near... a turnaround, isn't it? Yeah, he's a key, there's a key choice. So he sort of goes to this bar, and there's like this uh, guy sitting there, and they have a conversation. And um, he just said, he, he sort of effectively lists what happens in the film. So he says, you know, there's only, there's only like these things drive men. It's like, you know, sex, money, and fame, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The guy's just, if I was sat next to that man, I would just think him as like an unpleasant racist prick. But uh, William H. Macy seems quite taken in by him. Um, and drawn in. It's just it's this just this rotting a baseball match, and he's just really casually just saying like, "Oh, the thing is, the blacks, you know, they're not like us." And I thought, because obviously it's a few minutes to the film, I thought William H Macy would at least at least narrow his eyes at some of the things this man is saying. But he's, he's just like nodding along, completely taking it on board. And what the film does, it, it escalates from there. But what I found was it, the film is based on a play, and I. Th- I think David Mamet wrote the play, and so obviously he did the he did the script for this. And what I found was when I was watching the film, I I enjoyed it. But then when it finished, I thought about it, and I realised that I enjoyed it more after the fact because what happens is William H Macy plays this character who is constantly ranting to people, and just you know, um, if something he says gets taken the wrong way, he'll just kind of explode and just say, you know, I'm a man, I'm a white man, I can do what I want, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, whenever he is, he will talk like that to certain people who he sees as below him. But then, when he's kind of comes up against like a police officer, he kind of he instantly kind of shrinks back into his shell, and he's you realize that everything he does, all these things, he thinks he's acting impulse, and he's like being like this primal, you know man's man you realize he's just again being led by what other people say like at the start yeah. the, the, the fortune teller tells me you should be doing something else and he's like okay so then he leaves his wife and then he goes to a bar and the guy says you know men should do what they want and he's like okay but yeah he's kind of and there's Quite a ironic, there's, isn't it? yeah there's this, there's a key scene where he rupert there is a scene where he um have to after basically beating a man up like beating a guy up with like like, like a knife with kind of brass knuckles built into the handle. So he beats this guy up. Will he make beating a guy up? This is the thing. So he goes into this diner and Julia Stiles, who I worked this out, is 23 against William's, William Hitch Macy's 57. <coughs> and he just turns up covered in blood, starts ranting and just being like racist and just saying like men can do whatever they want. Boom, straight to bed. Straight to bed. <laughs> what? She is a very pretty lady, and she's also twenty-five years his junior. But what was the point? Is I'll let you enjoy that scene when you watch it. The film's only like an hour and twenty-four minutes. But then, of course, so he's just attacked this man. He's just stood up for himself physically, and he's won a fight. And then he's had sex with a much younger, beautiful woman. 
So he's kind of, he's still holding this knife in his box and he's walking around her apartment and he's just kind of almost drunk. Sorry. <coughs> almost kind of drunk on this like sense of elation and power and like machismo that he's got going on. Mm-hmm. And even then when he's talking and like, like um, relaying what has happened in this fight, he's kind of embellishing it, lying about it and saying he killed him. And, you know, the guy was huge. And you realize that he's constantly like lost in this fantasy of a life that isn't his. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so the, yeah, the, you, you, you're not meant to take it at face value sort of thing. I think David Mamet's clever enough to um, kind of not, I don't, it doesn't sound like the kind of thing where he would just say, all right, you know, this is, this is what we all really aspire to be. It's just these free spirits and just like uh uh, complete, complete, um, kind of intravenous masculinity kind of thing. What well, he's this, saying is that is that actually this person is just is just impressionable in a different way. He's just yeah, he's which is just which subscribed is, to a different creed again. What 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 you said then is exactly what I realised afterwards because what I found watching right. the film is you're watching it and of course it's filled with like some unpleasant people doing unpleasant things and I really have a problem with people who say things like oh he's just saying what we're all thinking or he's just doing what we all really want to do mm-hmm. i don't like that at all and so when i'm watching this film and all these things are happening and it's like i, I thought is this like a celebration of it and then i realized as it went on that it wasn't um <clears throat> that i kind of uh th- there's also a th- something about the film that i found a little bit grating but again was kind of key to why it works is William H. Macy is constantly, like I said, doing these like ranting speeches, but he's not kind of, um, he's not erudite enough to kind of get his point across. He kind of rambles and then the other person will, will finish his sentence. He's like, oh, you know, it's because we're, we're men, we're white. And then someone else will like finish the sentence. He'll go, yeah. And, and this kind of half, half finished dialogue yeah. is, is irritating to kind of sit through, but afterwards you can appreciate it. So it's it's almost like he's trying to make the kind of speeches that persuaded him in the first place. Yes, but he has persuade others, but he hasn't got that charisma or the level of it. intellect to kind of make it happen. So yeah. yeah, you just end up. Yeah, it's a really interesting film, and it seems really low budget, but it felt like oddly important because, um, mm. like, see, again, I've realised recently how much how important balance is and how when you're talking about something like masculinity, it, it's very easy for a film to just be either one note or yes. not really, or celebrated too much, kind of like the Wolf of Wall Street. Um, so it's, whereas this, yeah. it's a very fine balance. And I thought Edmund made it. it. It seems, yeah, particularly relevant. When was it made? 2005. Yeah. It seems really re- relevant today with the kind of rise of the disenfranchised white male um, and, you know, say anything kind of thing. Uh, and frankly, the rise of the far right as well. Yeah. And it, may, it makes me think of as well, I guess, a film that came out almost at the same time as Edmund then. It would be This Is England, um, which is about a very um, charismatic, persuasive um, Nazi, basically, uh, recruiting people and and how appealing it is to be told how powerful you are and you've got this power inside you and and all this kind of stuff and how immediately appealing it is but then it doesn't take long before you see how sinister that is that if you desire that power and reach for that power then that inevitably means that someone else is going to be disempowered and in this case 
well, in in the case of Edmund, I suppose it would be women. In the case of this is England, anyone except white men. Yeah, yeah. There's there's um one of the sort of it's it's quite telling that like when he leaves his wife and he he's like just they apparently have like a really unfulfilling sort of sex life, and he's like yeah I just want to get laid, and of course the, instead of going about that like you would like going to meet someone or maybe just going to like a bar he kind of just he just gets in these problems with prostitutes and going to these like really seedy like peep shows and stuff and it's 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 like a, a sort of exploration of what what he thinks he wants but he just doesn't know doesn't understand his own emotions enough to actually understand how he should be going about these things it's all yeah. about like, like instant gratification and it just comes across as really pathetic yeah, and really immature, really, isn't it? Because, of course, yeah. if if you're having problems with, in your marriage, then you try and deal with the problem in your marriage. You don't run away and just find a <laughs> prostitute to make yourself feel better about yourself. Yeah. yeah. That, I, that sounds interesting. I'll have to watch that. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Have a good see. <clears throat> like I said, it's only about, I think it's one hour and 24 minutes. So, um, Right, let's, let's have a, a conversation about Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, then. Okie dokie. Um. The reason I watched these is because Joel Schumacher died, sadly. Yeah. And, um, but I say, I mean, he he's old. He was he was older than I thought he was. To be honest, he was he was eighty. Eighty. Yeah. yeah. So, um, <coughs> but I, I mean, and he's made a he's made some good films as well. Um, but he made Falling Down, in fact, of course. And, oh, uh, there we go. Yeah, uh, you know, Flatliners is another good one. Um, he also made two Batman films in 1995 and 1997, uh, and the reason I went back to these specifically is because obviously I love Batman, but also I remember hating Batman forever and thinking that Batman and Robin wasn't that bad. And when I went back and watched them, I found that was indeed the case. In fact, because Batman <laughs> forever is just rubbish. And, wow. Val, and you're Kilmer. Val Kilmer. Yeah. So I'm surprised. <laughs> Val Kilmer is just, he's, he's a horribly quipping Batman and a really dull moping bruce wayne and but that's not even the worst part the worst the worst thing is is jim carrey and um tommy lee jones as uh the riddler and two-face respectively and they are desperately trying to out wacky each other and they both just come across as just crap versions of the joker like both i don't know why they're doing it they're just both constantly making jokes like the joker sort of thing and laughing at each other in fact i don't even think two-face needs to be in the film or at least he doesn't need to stay in the film because they kind of run out of things for him to do halfway through basically and by the end he is literally just standing there laughing at jim carrey's jokes and that's it (laughs) chris o'donnell is an abyss Uh, he's he's an he would have been young if he in abyss surely <sighs> wow um he's just got no charisma whatsoever um the yeah the the kind of the motivation behind the bad guys is they want to use tv signals to suck information out of people's heads yeah. which i thought was yeah. a little like bank details and stuff which i thought was a little bit prescient at least because it does kind of touch on the kind of information era which hadn't quite started yet but then the film doesn't care about that stuff instead the film focuses on a really tedious interminable romantic subplot um between batman and uh nicole kidman chase playing chase meridian um and and it's just 
there's zero chemistry, sub-zero <laughs> chemistry, one might say. Because um, Bruce Wayne is just, he is, he doesn't seem conflicted. He just seems desperately needy in this film. Like, oh, it's just, it's just pathetic. And Trace Meridian literally uses the bat signal so that she can invite him <clears throat> over and hit on him. And, and like, he does all this stuff like, grinning when he's wearing the cowl and stuff it's just it looks awful you can i could just imagine right when they're looking at <laughs> batman returns um tim burton's ultra dark sequel you, yeah i, I they're obviously wondering what went wrong and i they must have concluded nothing went wrong because batman <laughs> nothing, absolutely good. nothing went wrong but except the the, the money and they must have concluded <laughs> that there wasn't a re- a completely clear-cut really cheesy love story because that's what, <laughs> that's what I read all the Batman comics for. I'm waiting for that flicking through the pages. Where's the cheesy love story? Come on. <laughs> Do you know what the first thing that um, Batman says in this film? You Jesus may... Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ, what am I doing here? No, <laughs> it's actually, um, he's about to get in his car and Alfred asks him if he's eaten and Batman says, I'll get drive through. Yeah. <sighs> Oh, so that kind of sets the tone for just like, yes. oh, that, that's the kind of yeah. film this is then. Yes, and and like, there's a bit later where he's flirting with Chase Meridian again, and he says, oh, chicks love the car. It's the car, isn't it? And it's like, come on. Um, but anyway, like, those sorts of lines sound really bad. It's, it's just alongside uh, Val Kilmer's, like, really morose Batman I, I don't uh, sorry Ramos Bruce Wayne because it it sits really uncomfortably alongside each other. I did I did think the the production design is kind of nice. I don't mind the neon gothic style, but um, Joel Schumacher is incapable of shooting anything on a on a, a level. It's got to be a forty five degree angle. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> um, <clears throat> the theme music is quite good by Elliot Goldenthal and it. And it does recall the 60s TV show quite nicely. But that is really the problem with Batman Forever, is that it is caught between the 60s high camp and the brooding kind of gothic seriousness of Tim Burton's version. And that's why I think the Batman and Robin is better, because it fully commits to the ridiculous camp. Um, So at least it's got a focus. Yes. Batman and Robin is still not a good film. However... Um, well, I'll go through the bad stuff first. I mean, the Batgirl subplot is completely extraneous. She spends her time trying to discover what the secret is behind... Is is this the one with Alicia Silverstone? Yes. Right. Okay. And I think you do see her briefly in Forever, but I don't know whether she's meant to be... whether it was a call forward to um, Batgirl or not. But anyway, so in the but in Batman and Robin, she just skulked around the place trying to um discover bruce and um dick's real identities and and it literally about 90 minutes in she discovers their batman and robin it's like there's no tension or revelation here because you know we've had like three and a half movies to get to this point we (laughs) we know it's not it's not exciting anymore um and basically the whole concept of throwing 200 million dollars at this refashioned version of the 60s TV series <clears throat> is a fundamentally bad idea because it's forced cheapness and camp. and uh, But at least it is kind of dedicated to that cartoony style, unlike Forever. Um, 
and the bad guys are better than in Forever. Who are the bad They're, guys? I get these mixed up in my head. Um, these it's uh, Poison Ivy and Sub uh, not Sub Zero, um, <laughs> Mister Freeze, uh, Mister Freeze, and oh, and Bane as well. And the Bane in this is still better than the one in The Dark Knight Rises because he's actually just a physical presence. He doesn't speak, so instantly he's better. Um, is, it played by, is it Tyler something who played the Sabretooth oh, in the X Men films? I think it may be. Uh, yeah, yeah I remember being someone like yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. So the they're much more distinctive the the bad guys in this. They're not just aping the Joker. Um, that said, yeah. Mister Freeze's constant one-liners, although they're quite amusing, it doesn't sit very comfortably alongside his kind of tragic story. Um, and Uma Thurman's quite has a lot of fun as um, Poison Ivy, just constantly making gags about plants and stuff, um, and being all um, seductive in that. But her whole plot doesn't actually make any sense because basically she wants the story is that she wants revenge against the Wayne foundation because they funded the weaponization of the venom formula. Right. Um, but then she, then she confronts Bruce Wayne discovers that actually, um, what the Wayne foundation withdrew the funding from that. So, okay. So then she uses, um, like Bane who's filled with venom, in order to get revenge for some reason. I don't know why. I don't know why she'd do that. Surely yeah. she'd be like, all oh, right, okay, it was just a misunderstanding. <clears throat> yeah, I, it probably wouldn't have been as interesting a film then, though, Rupert. <laughs> probably wouldn't have been, would it? Um, so, yeah, and the production designers have step up from forever. Um, like, there's a really nice Gotham Observatory, is really cool. It's like um, the observatory's literally held aloft on this colossal statue, so that's pretty cool. And I'd have to say that uh, Ivy's hideout. Um, with all the plants and that, it it's in this that Turkish bath, and I, I it must have been an influence on Arkham City, um, the game, um, yeah. because it's it's so similar. Um, and also one other much better thing about this than well, pretty much any other Batman film up to that point was that there's loads more for Alfred to do in this because they think he's um, he seems to be dying. And there are see, there's some quite nice scenes between him and Bruce. So that's cool. So there's a lot more for Michael Goff to do. I was going to say, is it still Michael Goff? Because oh, yeah, yeah. he's the only constant throughout the four films, wasn't he? Yeah, he does pretty much nothing in Forever. Um, and really not that much in the previous ones. But he does get quite a lot of screen time in this. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, the action set pieces are ridiculous. Um, and over <laughs> the top. They play ice hockey with a giant diamond at one point. I, I still, I still think um, that the f- the best Batman film is is the first one because because it's it kind of it's very clear of its roots and Michael Keaton has that kind of partially due to the design of the suit but that kind of economy of movement he isn't doesn't like constantly make loads of jokes yeah. and and also Jack Nicholson is insane and actually funny so yeah. it's like this it's, it's, it all kind of works and there are other ones i enjoy like i really like returns and there are some elements of the the nolan trilogy i like but for me personally just i don't know the first one it yeah. just it just seemed to work i agree i i think this second i think the second one returns it's slightly less watchable like i could watch batman 89 forever but returns is I love the characters in that, and um, and of course Catwoman's amazing. And, and Danny DeVito doesn't give a hoot. 
he doesn't he give, didn't an give a hoot about his performance. Yeah, he was so the times he is literally spitting foul blackness all it's over amazing, himself. Isn't it? Where he okay. bites that guy's nose, it's horrendous. Um, yeah, so but I would say that, uh, yeah, I just think Forever is I wouldn't watch Forever again if I if I had the choice, but That's I would watch Batman, I probably again. would watch Batman and Robin again. It's very watchable and. Yeah, the idea that it's one of the worst films ever made is ridiculous. I mean, it's, it is, it may not be in the style that everyone wants, but once they're committed to that style, they are really truly committed, and and it does feel like a big budget version of the '60s TV series, even though that is fundamentally a quite a misguided idea. Um, well, moving on from Batman, which we're both big fans of, mm-hmm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say going to talk about a film now and i'm mainly um because i when i was making my notes my notes are so brave fruit but it's literally the title of the film and then and then the word right but <laughs> i watched um crooked house because i quite like mystery films have you heard of this film crooked house um i don't know it seems <clears throat> like it rings a bell but i don't know it's it's um it's an agatha christie um f- a film based on a novel also called crooked house from 1949 and I've written here, and I'm proud of this. It's pretty much knives out with the blades dulled. That's good. <laughs> That's um, good. So what? It, what we it is? Get on the poster. <laughs> no. Well, I wouldn't be able to reach the poster with a pen anyway. So billboards and stuff. Um, uh, hello. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I, I watched it because I fancied it, and I was watching it, and I thought you can you can very much. This was pretty much the template for knives out because it's exactly the same setup. It's a detective going into a house full of this like kind of kooky family, and it's just you know the um, the sort of patriarch of the family has been murdered, and he's brought in there to kind of he's got a relationship with a granddaughter who's a complete and total screamer, and he's there to kind of work out what's happened. But the problem is, and I thought this because it's got like Gillian Anderson there, it's got Julian Sand in it, good, and a few other people, uh, Glenn Close doing a really good English accent. Um, I thought why. Well, has this been made like this year? Because it's so. What did they see knives out and thought? Oh, we'll we'll knock an Agatha Christie novelization, and you know, while yeah. that is popular. But this is actually released at the tail end of 2017, so it's actually done before right. Knives Out. So it's interesting to see two films that are so similar, but obviously this is the the original sort of thing, and it is really. It comes across as a really flat film, and it does not hold up to close scrutiny at all. Apparently, there are some deviations from the plot. And when I read the deviations from the plot, they were kind of minimal sort of things. Um, but the main problem is that the main detective does not need to be in the film. Um, and the, the sort of mystery and the tension come, comes from people just being really evasive. So the, the whole thing, so Sophia, this granddaughter, she, she goes to him. They've got a history. They met together in Cairo. And it doesn't really go into until much later on why they sort of split up. But she's like, look, you know, you're a, it's Max Irons, actually, Jeremy Irons' son, who plays the main detective. Right. And he says, she says to him, look, I want you to come in. I think my grandfather's been murdered. Um, he was found poisoned. Can, you know, I only trust you. Can you come and, and interview the, the family, this huge um, family that live in this house, and just talk to everyone and try and get to the bottom of it? So he doesn't want to do it. He's like, well, no, because, you know, I used to love you. And now we brought him. It's just unpleasant for me, really, on a personal basis. And she talks him into it. And the second, the 
he is in that house. She just turns into a stupid bitch and is just really just making his job much harder than it needs to be, really evasive, giving him like half answers and half truths and stuff. And, well, and even though she asked him there. Even though she's explicitly there because she asked him to be there. And and there and there are so many times when I would just I would have just if I was him, I would have just lost my temper at the whole situation. And uh, like there's a bit where he's talking to Gillian Anderson. She's like a failed actress, and he's talking about like how the, no one said the word murder. And she's like, "Oh yeah, well you know, ever since my father was murdered." And she kind of stops. And I, and like, as a detective, I would have leaned forward and said, "You just said he was murdered. And it wasn't suicide." No, no such thing. It just he just sort of goes, "Oh, that's weird. She's a murder." Ah well, and then the film carries on, um, and the whole thing. And I'm going to do a spoiler here because <laughs> I know the film is only three years old, but the novel on which it was based is over <laughs> 70. So I'm breaking the rules. And this whole, there's a little girl in the house and she's got this like notebook. She's always diddling stuff in. And she's always, again, teasing the detective with like, oh, you know, I, oh, my notebook holds all the answers and I know things, but I'm not telling you. Instead of just punching her in the throat, taking a notebook and solving the crime, he, he's like happy to be led on this kind of merry, irritating dance. And towards the end of the film, he does just, you know, because missing and he finds it and it just solves the entire thing. Like, wow, she's done it. Basically, she has she's like killed her grandfather because she's bored. She just wants stuff to do. And she thinks she's kind of hyper intelligent. She likes to have be the center of attention. Um. And so it's like, yeah, I killed granddad, uh, blah, 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 blah. I killed Nanny as well. This is all the details. This is why I did it. And and that's it. So really, he doesn't need to be in the film because he is completely inept through the entire thing. And then by reading a child's book, has the crime solved for him? Um, <laughs> and I thought this is just, this just is not a good film. Again, it's kind of like the whole thing about, you know, you, it feeds you titbits and you're like, oh, we'll work it out. But then it just like basically just pulls the, what's the term, pulls the sheet off the table kind of thing. You're like, oh, there it is. It's, that's, that's how it's done. Um, Glenn Close is really good in it. And, and the, the very mm. final, her, she's always good. It, uh, yes. But in this film, the very, the final few moments, the way, the way that, um, the way that she kind of closes her character arc is really nice. But, it's just you're basically and it's it's two hours long as well and it feels like really old hat so it's two hours of watching a man walk around a really nice house um making no attempt to solve a crime and getting drawn into really irritating conversations with irritating people so i just thought this this no no thank you so it's called crooked house crooked house yeah Mm. um so it doesn't sound like something i'm gonna watch my capacity for whodunits is pretty low at the best of times but yeah. when they when they cheat the audience as well that's just going to be irritating i think also as well i think it's not it's not so much to say cheated it's just it's just wrapped up in this pathetic way mm. um but and i thought if you've gone through the trouble of changing these odd odd bits of the plot that make no real difference. It's not like if you've read the book, you're going to get a different experience watching the film because they're so close anyway. Why yeah. not just kind of put more effort and just change the whole, not the whole thing, but just change bits about it to make it more interesting? Because if you look at Knives Out, right, which is, yeah. I don't know if you've heard of this before, it's a good film, Rupert. <laughs> like, what makes it good is that you've got these actors like completely at the top of their game, having really interesting scenes, acted well, and they like li- the little vignettes and the sort of asides. Mm-hmm. 
are interesting to watch and, and yet it, it all comes together as, as a whole and daniel craig actually does his job as a detective and solves a crime and crucially there's a reason why each of them doesn't isn't forthcoming with the truth sort of thing yeah divulging information yeah there's a and that is embedded in the plot so that's that's never an issue but i know what you mean when characters are withholding information for no reason that is very contrived the the whole when he turns up at the house and people are just not giving information Mm. not um not um like not like not forthcoming with information, not being helpful at all, and especially when he turns to Sophia and says your family really weird and stuff, and then she is really evasive when he asks her direct questions. That's the point when I would have said, "Oh look, I'm going. This is crap. Um, <laughs> this is just really irritating." Um, there's a sequence as well in it which kind of made me furrow my brow. Where he goes into, he meets Julian Sands, who is like the eldest son of the, of the, the grandfather, and he goes into his like office and he's sitting there and there the, he, and he's like really hostile towards the detective. And, he, mm. and he, he's really hostile and just really snarky. And it's filmed in a way as if, to, as if we're, we're supposed to be impressed by his detective acumen, where he stands up and says, oh, one more thing, Mr. Sands, or whatever his name is. Uh, <laughs> I have one more thing, Julian Sands from Warlock. Um, he says, oh, um, I notice you're not, sad at, you're not sad about your father's death. You, you're not showing any kind of, you, you, you're not sad at all. And and then Julian Sands is like slightly taken aback and asked him to leave. And I thought, the thing is, people deal with grief in different ways fundamentally. So yeah, he may be combative because he's dealing with grief and he doesn't want to talk about it to you. So it's like the whole film feels a little bit badly written and a bit broken. Yeah. No, They're no. like caricatures as opposed to yeah. caricatures. Um, all right. I'll quickly, I'll quickly cover Ma, um, which I saw in Sky Cinema. Um, this is a pretty mediocre, uh, Bloomhouse sort of horror thriller thing with Octavia Spencer. She does elevate it because she's a good actor. Um, it's basically about, um, Octavia Spencer plays this woman, um, who is kind of a bit sad and lonely. And one day, like these teenagers ask her to buy some booze from the shop silly and for them and she reluctantly agrees but then um she kind of gets in with their banter and then she invites them round um to her to just drink in her basement basically and then this kind of this becomes a regular thing and soon she's kind of kind of like the most popular woman in town with the kids because Mm. she's just like kitted out her basement and they can drink there without worrying about the police and stuff so that's the kind of thing. Um, yeah, it, it's suppose it's like it's almost like she is entering this kind of the teenage popularity contest, but a late stage something. Um, and I quite liked that element of it because it it sort of suggests that the whole self-promoting social media thing is is more of an issue of just human beings and not necessarily age as such. You find out that she had. A traumatic experience uh, as a, a schoolgirl, basically, um, and that's the reason why she's so kind of like awkward socially, uh, and why she really wants to just latch onto these uh, being popular. Um, okay, it's not a very good film, though. That's the problem. <laughs> Other than her, it's not very good. It's very ah. tame. 
and and pretty much bloodless and and it's it hasn't really got an edge to it as such i mean it, obviously it's got the kind of i suppose the the bit about social media but it, it's it, it's weirdly coy about what i would assume is a racial element to her to what happened to her in childhood I mean, okay it, it's like it doesn't want to spoil the, the lightness of the film with, with yeah. any kind of rate, racism or anything like that uh, the teenage the problem is is the teenagers are pretty dull themselves like none of them stand out at all but then the adults you've got octavia spencer juliette lewis and luke evans who are all having a lot more kind of fun um than any of the teenagers seem to be so um yeah that's it is weird actually seeing juliette lewis as a mother now because i just associate juliette yeah. lewis with being a girl you know like in cape fear and dust till dawn that sort of thing um but of course, she is just mother age now. She could be the mother. Yeah, of her, yeah, like a re- rebellious kind of younger woman. I suppose because yeah. she's in that band, Juliet and the Licks, isn't she? So right. that feisty punk rock spirit, and yet yeah, yeah, she is as a mum. Yeah, it's it's an okay concept, I guess, but I feel it should have been a creepier film and a cleverer film, or possibly funnier and grosser. You so know, a better got- film. <laughs> yes, a better film. It could, they could have gone one or two ways. They could have gone down the creepy, clever route, which is all very subtle and slow burning, or they could have gone down the kind of bit more wild, gross out route. But they don't really go either way, and it it's very much down the middle. It's very young adult, and I don't think young adults are really gonna find it that exciting, to be honest, because it's so tame. Um, it just treads very lightly in every one of its aspects. And it makes it quite forgettable, really. So, not the best. Because hasn't Octavia Spencer been in some pretty heavy-duty stuff in the past? Yeah, she's good. At, she's a good actor, I and mean, she she tends to be more of a a supporting role. So she'll she'll pop up and stuff like hidden figures and stuff. And she's always she'll always steal the scene. Um, and I think the help as well. But um, but I can see why she would take on something like this because it must have been it's quite a cool part for a middle-aged black woman to have like um be like headlining a film as the bad guy sort of thing so that's quite exciting and she's really good in it but it's just the film around her which doesn't really do any favors oh that is a shame yeah it is a shame, uh, really. um and what did you see that sorry <clears throat> that was on sky cinema because i realized still have some of our three month free trial left so that's for a few um, of them I've got well, I've got two left, and then Sanctum, one of which we both watched. So, I'll quickly cover this film: um, Desperado from '95 with Antonio Banderas and Salma Hayek, um, Steve Buscemi, and Quentin Tarantino, obviously Danny Trejo. Um, <laughs> so, I I basically was in the kitchen the other day reading Keith Floyd on Spain, and um, I was just looking at some Spanish recipes, and I th- and put on some music to get me in the zone, See, and I started, funny. and I said to Faye, "Well, we need to watch." Desperado, and then Once Upon a Time in Mexico now. Um, so I, I, this is a film, kind of like From Dust Till Dawn and, uh, and The Rock, uh, Connie, that occupy a space in my mind in the 90s that I would, as a teenager, I would watch and re-watch constantly. Yep. And I realised that unlike those films um, that I just mentioned, Desperado is one that I literally haven't seen since I watched it at the time. Mm. So I popped it on and I, it's, it was hard to say how good the film is because I, my nostalgia is so kind of tied up with it. Mm. What I what I would say is that I I didn't uh, whilst I had fun with it and it was fun to like oh I remember this bit oh yeah of course he's in it 
beyond that, it, it, it seemed just really chaotic in a slightly tedious way. Wow. Um, like, so you've you got Antonio Banderas, um, who actually plays his own guitar in it, which is nice, you know, does his own guitar work, which is always nice to see. And, but you've got Chicha Marin and all these like funny stories and stuff, but then it just feels like it moves from scene to scene. And this, it's ne- the action's never really exciting. It's gory and very bloody, but it's mm. it almost feels feels a bit too sort of pantomimey. Like there's right. there's always like a tongue in cheek in every scene, um, and everyone's like quipping. And I just thought, no, it's, it's, it didn't. It really didn't grab me. Like I w- I would never watch it again now. Whereas I would happily watch from Dust Till Dawn uh, again. Yeah. Or the rock is, or is the action over stylized? I'm not sure. I can't remember. <laughs> is this is you being sarcastic? I I don't know because I, I <laughs> because some there was a lot of these films, especially from the nineties, these big biggish budget, um, like high profile action movies, is you know like The Rock or something like that, where I remember enjoying it at the time and thinking it was quite exciting. Watching it now, it's just unintelligible what's happening in the room. It's just it's just a cool shot rather than a shot which is designed to actually explain the action on screen if you sort of mean oh you know this is the editing is a bit better than this when it comes to the action sequences but it's just the fact that you know like he's the whole thing about him being the el mariachi and he's got this like sort of um gun this this guitar case filled with guns and stuff and there's some like funny moments in it but then when the gun shooting the sort of gunplay happens it's it's very over the top like diving on bars and shooting and then there's a bit where they they're like scrambling around trying to find a gun with a bullet that shoot the other person Oh my God, um, I remember all of these scenes. <laughs> and then, yeah, let's think you remember them. You're like, yeah. it's like, oh yeah, this. You know, at the time I would have thought, oh, this is so cool. But now you watch it and think it's okay. But I was more interested in the music. The music was really good because I think it's um, the band called Other Lost Locals or Tito and the Tarantulas who were also in From Dust Till Dawn. Um, and the music's really cool. It's it's a like it's such a wonderfully Mexican film with all these Mexican actors in and Antonio Banderas looks fantastic and it's all very stylized but again it felt like it was trying to be cool and yeah. like now um, you watch it and it doesn't it, it doesn't really it didn't really engage me in, in the same way understandably I suppose yeah. um, I like how certain sequences like big gunfights are kind of they start and then as someone raises a gun it cuts to like the aftermath of it quite like that but the bit that always tickles me and i remember thinking this when i was a kid is well, there's a bit where um uh antonio banderas um he's got these two friends i can't remember the names and salma hayek says oh, you, need, you need help you should call your two friends and he said no no they'll they'll if they come here they'll 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 ruin the city uh, you know insinuating that they're like so mad so beyond they'll just completely destroy everything and they're like this unstoppable force is one of them danny Trejo? No, 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 no. He is in there with yeah. knives, um, all too briefly, all too briefly. Right, yeah. Um, but yeah, he is in there with knives. But um, of course, he calls his two mates, and they turn up, and then within minutes, they're dead. Um, they turn <laughs> up, and they they blow up a couple of cars, shoot a few blokes, and then just dead. Not a threat at all. <laughs> Not a problem. Um, so yeah, it's and and that's kind of sums up the whole film really, like builds up to these things, and then it, it, it don't know, it never really. I mean, obviously, it's a low budget film, but. It's it's so caught up in its in its own style that it did feel like style over substance, you know. Like, like Salma Hayek is a gorgeous woman, but then there's like loads of scenes of them just like lightly flirting with each other and stuff, and you're like, I don't know, I wouldn't mind something happening to be honest. And then when it when it does happen, you get some like Danny Trey was almost like you know, like, it's almost done a, like a video game where like, Danny Trey is like a boss character and he turns up with his lives and then and then oh, he's dead. Okay, 
he and it just feels long. he, he no. pretty much just stands up, throws a few knives, and then just gets killed, doesn't he? Yeah, but then you think it would be cool if he was hunting him down and he came back, and it's like the action never quite gets up to the level you want it to be at. Right. So, um, but yeah, no, it's just, it's a cool. It's I liked it for how it looked and the music, but um, as as a film, it does, it's not it's not really anything that grabs me. Is it on Prime or Netflix? I watched this on Prime. I paid for it. It wasn't like a Prime film. It was like three pound oh. fifty rental. Okay. Um, yeah, it sounds like it's quite difficult to untangle the nostalgia on that one. Yeah. So I was trying to, but yeah. I mean, I don't know. There's a difference between thinking... I remember scenes when they start, I remember thinking, oh yeah, this is really cool. And then, and then watching it's... it and thinking it's it's not. It's not, cool. a, not actually it's as cool as I remember. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, Oh, that doesn't sound like it's held up too well then. Um, yep. uh, I watched uh, a film, uh, an, an older action film as well now, we can call right. it that, The, tr- the Transporter. Um, so this was obviously, this is Jason Statham's post-Guy Ritchie big break, really. Um is it 2001 or something? I think 2002, maybe. Um, it's directed by someone called Corey Yoon. Um, and... He went on to direct the Dead or Alive movie, so that's what you need to know there. Well, the video game Dead or Alive. Yeah. Bloody hell, um, I didn't know that existed. Um, <clears throat> although he is co-directing with Louis Leterrier. Now, he is a man who is known for the dreadful Now You See Me. But he also oh, he also uh, did um, the quite charming Netflix reboot of Dark Crystal. Um, he's listed as a an artistic director, Louis Leterrier. And I, I'm wondering if this is to help Corey Ewan uh, work with a French crew, perhaps, because it's it's all it's all kind of set in France, and most of the actors seem to be French. Uh, yeah. So anyway, I think what it's it's almost like this is like proto Jason Statham, and I think what's appealing about what I realise is appealing about Jason Statham's kind of persona is that there's a kind of a slight sense of softness and vulnerability underneath the swagger if you like um because he's at his best when he is feeling exasperated at people seeing through the tough guy exterior because if you look at like this or safe or crank um and and this is why spy was so spot on because it kind of identified that his confidence is just a smokescreen for um what kind of lies beneath if you like that it, it's just it's ridiculous swagger and nothing more it's almost like an ironic front really but anyway um so yeah the transporter is co-written by luke besson which means you get the kind of inventive action scenes you get a bit of slapstick and dubious sexual politics of course <laughs> i'll go without that um so basically jason Statham, he transports stuff and never asks what he's actually transporting but this one time it's a young chinese woman who's like stuffed in a bag in his boot um she's involved with these people traffickers and she persuades him to help her out um basically by being a kind of pixie dream girl she's you remember we were talking about the born sexy yesterday trope the kind of slightly clueless yet sexy and very highly sexual woman but that's exactly what she is um although it is kind of understandable to be fair in this case why she'd want to feel safe because i mean she's been involved with sex traffickers um and people traffickers of which her father is like the the ringleader then i suppose she probably does want to feel safe 
Um, that would make sense. And she can kind of see the goodness behind Statham's cold exterior. Um, and there, there is a kind of wholesome nature to it, which can kind of carry it past the ridiculous plot and the the insane accents. He starts. Just to say, he starts. He starts this film with an American accent, and it, he just drops it. I don't know whether they filmed it chronologically or whatever, but he literally just drops his accent That's because amazing. it wasn't working. Um, yeah, so uh, it's weird because in this Transporter Two, he starts off speaking with like a really broad Yorkshire accent and ends up speaking in full Gaelic. <laughs> wow, he is, <laughs> he's quite the polymath. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, there are some good action scenes, really cool action scenes in this. There's one, there's a fight scene where Jason Statham is completely lubed in motor oil, which is quite funny, and he's just slipping around the place. That's, that's quite amazing. <laughs> and his fight moves are really, really impressive in this, in a way that I don't think I haven't really seen in a while from him. Like it's really, really cool. Um, like it must be him doing a lot of the stunts and that. But um, I may have to watch this tonight. It's You're... it's it's okay. It's mu- it's held up way better than Crank has put it that way. And it's silly, but it's quite sweet natured, and and the editing doesn't get in the way of the um, of the action, which is good. Um, but there's some really cool fight scenes, and it's it's pretty much non-stop as well. So yeah, uh, so I think it's yeah. It, as I say, it's held up better than Crank. It's got quite a sweet nature about it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's. Um, are you going to watch the other two films now in the trilogy? Or I'm not sure. I I can't. I remember nothing about the second one. I, I remember the third one. I think is the one with the girl Jim in Rathen. it, the bread fancies. Yes. <laughs> I but I all I remember from that is just. A lot of weird conversations about food in the car. And yes, that's all I, remember from that. I think the further on it goes, the more it kind of deviates from what makes the original good. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure it really demanded a sequel or two, but there you go. But yeah, Jason Statham's always watchable, and he looks identical to what he does today, really. Um, yeah. So that's that's Transporter. Uh, have you any more? Uh, yeah, I've got uh, one more. Freaks. Um, okay. We- not that one. Um, the one that it, it's a, I don't know who it was directed by actually, but it's a film that actually last Thursday we had a last action film that, and we watched Sanctimony, which we'll talk about in a bit. I, I, after the film, I went in and Fade said, Oh, this film just started. So we watched Freaks and she kind of got me up to speed. And it's a film of sort of two halves. So I won't give anything away because it, it, it I wouldn't want to ruin it. And it's only about four seconds old as well. So it stars um, Emile Hirsch who, with a beard, looks like Jack Black, and without a beard, looks like Michael Shannon. So it's Emil Hirsch with a beard in full Jack Black mode, and he is kind of just constantly banging back energy drinks and just looks peaky in this house. He's completely boarded up, and he's got a daughter that he won't let leave. And his daughter, um, in, a, she, in this like sort of crawl space she sort of goes to, is kind of haunted by... like this really foul woman, this really dirty woman who like reaches out the shadows at her and stuff. Right. Uh, Bruce Dern, obviously, turns up. He's at least 46 now. Um, but he's just one of those people I always like seeing him, knowing he's still around. He rocks up and he's like a kind of plays a creepy kind of ice cream man who's kind of trying to befriend the little girl and sort of uh, when he sees her, like trying to, you know, sort of talk her out of the house and stuff. And Emilio is having absolutely none of it. Um, so what happens is then there's a, halfway through the film, obviously, it, it takes it, takes a turn and, and goes in a different direction um but it was good and I, it's hard to say any more about it without 
any spoilers really but what i will say was i was really glad when it finished and i did enjoy the film and it ended i was really glad that it was a film and not a tediously drawn out mm. tv show which i reckon it could easily have been it's always a temptation isn't it oh i mean I, when it finished the first thing i said was i'm glad that was a film not a tv show because it would just it would have just the premise and the kind of you know that sort of the reveals would have been so so boring stretched over a thousand years but the fact that it was meant it had to be 90 minutes and punchy made it it meant it worked a lot better so yeah it's it's kind of um there's some parts that which look slightly cheap there's a sequence uh that's set underground a little bit later on and and it was almost like tv movie-ish so i don't know how much mm. the budget was behind it but it is a fundamentally decent film i i, that's a good I quite like emile hirsch i think i don't think i've seen him in anything else i feel like he should be a bigger um a bigger actor than he is like he he was in um you've probably seen jane doe the what's it called the yeah with him and brian Cox. albert finney Brian Cox, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, yes, that is true. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Yeah, and I, you see him pop up in things, and I think, mm, is it just because you look a bit like Jack Black? I'm not sure. Oh, my God. You haven't him. quite. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, well, that, so is it worth a watch? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And I, I've, it's not normally the kind of film I think I would choose if I'd scrolled it, but the fact that Faye had chosen it and chucked it on meant that I'm, I watched it, and I'm glad I did, because okay. yeah, it's definitely worth a goosey. Okay, what's it called again, and what what do we see it on? It is called Freaks, and it is on Netflix, and it okay. is not directed by Todd Browning and his brother Gravy Browning. <laughs> um, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna whiz through three Karate Kid ripoffs now. Oh, please do. <laughs> <laughs> um, all of which are on Prime, actually. Okay. Um, the the first one is called a dangerous place and this is quite it's a well-meaning but pretty shoddy movie it's got um it's got cory feldman as a leader of a gang who um it's a bit wait are these 80s films yes i think they're all like yeah oh no the second one isn't um but this is 80s uh and yeah cory feldman maybe early 90s who knows it could be any time really it's that time when a film could have been made and then not released for four or five years, to be honest, because it's not good enough. And um, so <laughs> Corey Feldman is the very convincing leader of this gang of um, of like karate experts. And basically their sensei is getting his gang to go and steal motorbikes and TVs and stuff. Scorpions. And but what, there's a problem already here. <laughs> Why would karate experts be any less likely to be caught by police? Because they're not ninjas or anything. In fact, in the very first scene, they rock up at this place to steal these bikes, this um, car showroom place. Um, they rock up there. And before they've even decided what bikes to steal, the police are there and they're being chased. So rubbish. <laughs> anyway, they one of the one of the people in this gang, um, they they kill one night because he says oh it's wrong what we're doing or whatever and his little brother um suspects that they murdered him because they made it look like a suicide but he the little brother suspects they murdered him um so of course what he does is he joins the scorpions um to become a karate expert himself um 
It's the way and I'd avenge any murder, to be honest. It's it's all building towards a final tournament, um, of course. And then at the final tournament, he decides to switch sides and fight against the Scorpions. Mm-hmm. So, of course, and, and at this point, you're like, OK, fine. This is how he's going to kind of deal with his grief and finally get revenge or whatever. But no, because the tournament just collapses and they end up just having a rubbish fight outside and <laughs> against Corey Feldman, who's clearly a stunt double. And um, and then and then Corey Feldman is just arrested at the end. But I, I just thought, well, hang on. Just because he's had a fight with him and beat up Corey Feldman doesn't doesn't mean that he's got any further evidence that Corey Feldman is guilty of the crime, you know? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't actually... Like, there's nothing... There's still work left to do. That's the point. They all go off into the sunset sort of thing. But it's like, wang about There's more to do here. But anyway, none of it really makes any sense. It's too dark and serious for kids and too tame for adults. So that who, plays, who plays the kind of kid, the younger brother... Um, Ted Jan Robson. Ted Jan oh, right. Roberts. I, I don't know. He's pretty oh. good. He's pretty skillful. He wears baggy t-shirts in that film. <laughs> they are so baggy they go beyond his elbows. It's amazing. Worth <laughs> <laughs> it for that. Okay, worth okay. it for t-shirts. <laughs> Next one, also on Prime, is called Showdown. This one was 1993. Um, I watched this because it had Billy Blanks in it. Billy Blanks plays. <laughs> Um, he basically is a cop who um, accidentally kills a kid. And so you, the next time you see him, he's a janitor in a school, um, you know, down on his luck and all that. And basically this this kid um, played by Ken Scott, who looks about 40, um, he turns up at the school and uh, he talks to a girl played by Christine Taylor, the um, Ben Stiller's wife. Um, and... So he he talks to this girl and it's instantly set upon by her boyfriend um, who is just really aggressively possessive over her. And okay. so he gets he gets a shit kicked out of him. And of course, after a couple of these, he decides um, and Billy Blanks rest saves him at one point. And then he says um, and then Ken Scott says, oh, can you train me to become like a karate master? Which of course he does. There are so many, um, so many. Uh, what are they called? Um, montages. Um, oh my god! So many. It's brilliant. It would be a very um, different film if he said, "I want you to train me so I can become." And Billy Blank said, "Yeah, I know a martial artist." He's like, "No, no, a janitor." Actually, I'm thinking about um, just just getting into custodial work. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so it's quite funny how they like really try and cover up Ken Scott's. Uh, body for the first the first half of the film because oh, so you can't so, see he's completely ripped he's completely ripped it's ridiculous um uh there is oh it's it's quite a badly made movie there's an amazing moment where billy blanks is like trapped in a room underground and that there's two goons coming at him from two doorways and i'm not joking at the side of the frame you can literally see a member of the crew just standing there with his back to us it's astonishing but not only that but you then see, as the camera's panning across, you see like a hand come into frame and drag the person away out of frame. It's astonishing. It's amazing. Um, there's literally nothing in this film we haven't seen before. Um, uh, but it's got, it's got a kind of, it's quite nice in a way. I mean, like the main... It sounds it, fiercely generic, Rupert. It is very generic. Um, but he's genuinely a not quite a nice boy, I, I, albeit one who looks about 40. Um <laughs> 
and it does vaguely touch upon the mechanics of abusive relationships um, with regard to like, cause Christine Taylor's character really wants to get away from her kind of boyfriend, but she's too scared basically to, to call it a day. Cause she's she um, capable of kind of thing. Yeah. But I mean, her character is all over the place. I mean, sometimes she's just complete buzzkill. Other times she's a damsel in distress. And, and then, and then she'll be suddenly be a, like an air punching cheerleader. Um, without any real reason like at the end she's like saying please don't do this please don't fight him and all this kind of stuff next second she's like yeah yeah beat him up and it's like yeah ridiculous <laughs> so that was that that was um what was that called showdown billy blanks um is and then billy the- blanks does he is he he's a capable fighter because oh yeah kicks ass. He, he is good yeah that's good there so there's some decent um yes and but the best of the three karate rips rip-offs i saw was called tough turf which is the worst title of any film ever made t-u-f-f turf tough turf it just sounds awful um i i assumed this was going to be like a trashy like action movie but that's actually a bit more of like a kind of a, a drama really it was made in 1985 and james spader plays this rich kid who rocks up in a small town um and he fancies a girl played by Kim Richards, but she is owned by a psychopathic bully. So it's basically oh. the same story as Showdown. It just really. sounds Billy um, Blanks. It doesn't have anywhere near the same kind of action, but the, the drama and the performances are way better. Spader is particularly good. And some a guy called Nick uh, Monez, it, who plays the boyfriend guy, he's really convincingly unhinged. He's nuts in this film. But I don't. I haven't heard of him before or since, so I don't know. Um, oh yeah, Robert Downey Jr. is in it, of course, as well. Uh, of course he is. Of course he is. He is. His presence is basically superfluous, though. He's just there to crack the occasional joke. He doesn't really do anything. Um, and he's weirdly. I, I, it's been a while since I've seen him in it as a really young man. He's weirdly feminine looking. He's got these strange, like cherry red lips. It's quite odd. Um, uh, I, I kind of what I like about this is the way that like James Spader's character starts off very overconfident in that kind of uh, John Hughes kind of movie kind of way where like kids like it will be a kind of outsider person, but they're just effortlessly cool and they don't care about being popular at school and stuff. But yeah. but it's almost like about him learning humility throughout it. He isn't just the coolest guy in, in town it's almost like that's covering up this deep loneliness that he has. Um, and what I liked about it too, and what also separates it from someone like John Hughes is that his parents aren't completely useless and patronizing and they do kind of understand what he's going through. And there's a really nice scene where he he's with his father and his dad is basically saying to him, he asked his dad for advice basically. And you're thinking, oh, you know, his dad's going to be useless. He's just an old man, doesn't know. But actually, he gives him some good advice and basically just tells him to take it easy on himself and stop stop putting so much pressure on himself to, um, you know, get the girl and be popular and stuff. Um, Who plays the dad? No idea. Someone old. Weirdly old. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's all quite good. Um, and also, it is probably the most 80s film I've ever seen. and i've seen a few 80s films like (laughs) it's i think because it's trying to be so it was so kind of contemporary hip at the time that instantly dates it anyway so like the constant echoing snare 
and the sink. Um, the clothes, wow. The crimping, wow, wow, wow. And it's, yeah, so it's like a retro fashion dream, really. There's a bit where they go to a golf club to kind of mock a load of yuppies. And it's just, oh, it's amazing. Like watching distinctly uncool people take the piss out of other people for not being cool. It's amazing. Um, oh, and there's, yeah, they, when they go to the golf club, there's this terrible cover band, right? Who are just playing really bland music. Yet, yes. yet at the end of the film, um, like when they're all partying, like the supposed pinnacle of cool is a band called Jack Mack and the Heart Attack. And these these guys, it's a real band. And they're just like this really cringy, like blue-eyed soul band. Oh. Uh, <laughs> like, it's just, and you're thinking, I don't know, like they were mocking the kind of cover band at the golf club. And yet here's a band who just sound, oh, they just sound like sub-commitments nonsense. It's just awful. Oh, oh, sub-commitments. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, strong so, at his best. So, um... I would say out of those three, A Dangerous Place, Showdown, and Tough Turf, if you have to watch one, then I would go with Tough Turf. But Showdown's quiet. quiet. I was going to say, I do, I do like Billy Blanks. I know I'm yeah. going to have a few beers when I think, oh, I can see a bit of BB, see what happens. Yeah, it's it's okay. And I've, it's got some people doing good fighting in it, so that's fine. I've got one. See what doing. I'm going to sum up this film really, really quickly because I've just, again, just remembered I saw it as I as I was chatting. I watched Run All Night with Liam Neeson and Joel Kinnaman and uh, what's his name, Ed Harris, and I put the film on and the whole thing. The premise is uh, Liam Neeson plays a guy called Jimmy who's like um, is like an old sort of gangster, like you know, like the Irish mob sort of thing, and Ed Harris is his like school friend who's doing really well and runs like a few streets and stuff. And Liam Neeson is all burned out, alcoholic, and his son, Michael, played by Joel Kinnaman, who I really like, uh, has just completely removed himself um, from from the life of crime and has got like his own family now and wants nothing to do with that life or mm. his father. Now, that film started, and I think I paused it 10 minutes in because if we had to take away and it turned up, and I turned to Faye and I said, this is what's going to happen in this film. And I, list, <laughs> I, I listed a few things. And those things happened, Rupert. It is the most generic action film I have ever seen. And it's also it by like, the same guy who did like Unknown. Oh, Unknown. Um, the one on the plane. Yeah, Appenatum, Ab- whatever it's called, Nonstop. It's the yeah. same director, same. Um, there's a bit in it where Liam Neeson is uh, like, it's just, they're just the same films. There's a bit in there where he's on the run with Joel Kinnaman and they, the, they're being chased by an entire police force and like a police helicopter that is literally shining a light on them and saying, and he is saying, I can see them, I've got sight of them. And they they run into this, like, run down, like, I think it's into this train track thing and into a building, into a small building, right, with one entrance and no exit. And like, they literally say, shit, there's no way out. And then it shows outside and it shows the police storming it and then it cuts and then they're just outside by some bushes looking back at the building. And I thought, what? <laughs> and then the, the helicopter's like, oh, we've lost them. And I thought, what? You <laughs> can't. Ow. That's a suddenly he found a shotgun moment. Um, yeah, and I, I rewound it and I thought, I must have missed something. No, just. Cuts to them saying, like, looking around, like, oh, shit, there's no way out. And then just cuts to them looking through some bushes saying, oh, thank God we got away from that. Um, 
Thank God I got away from that, looks directly at the camera because we probably couldn't, could we? Um, so yeah, it was, and it was the just generic and it finished. And I actually turned it off 15 minutes towards the end and just looked on Wikipedia and thought, yeah, exactly. I, it was so boring. <laughs> just it, uh, just to see the beats as they happened, honestly. Um, yeah, that's quite disappointing, really, because, um, you know, like you watch something like Unknown and you think, oh, you know, there's potential here. They could, you know, this yeah. this re- burgeoning relationship between them, they, they could develop this into something quite interesting, um, yeah. like interesting, like Hitchcockian thrillers. But it's disappointing that they just basically regurgitated the same thing each time. Oh yeah, it is. It's a, one of the most not just generic in, like Philip Neeson. Just it's the film that it feel, feels like could have been made at any point by anyone. Mm. Uh, it's just, and in fact, you've got Ed Harris in it and stuff. And it does that weird thing of, like, because the whole thing kicks off because Liam Neeson, I say accidentally, shoots Ed Harris's son, and mm. admits to it. And then Ed Harris is like, "Well, it doesn't matter what we've had before." Um, you know, you've killed my son. I'm going to kill you and your and your son and everyone basically. And that's what kicks off the film. Mm-hmm. And there's a bit of the start. And you know, when in a film someone delivers a line and you think I'm going to hear this line about six or seven times, aren't I? <laughs> Where he says to Ed Harris, you know, when we cross the line, we cross the line together. And Ed, Ed Harris says it back to him. He says it on the phone to him. He says it on the phone to him later on. They meet up for like a, a tense scene in the restaurant and someone says it then. And then as Ed Harris is dying in his arms, he says it again. And I just thought, oh my God, this couldn't be a more generic film if it tried. So just don't don't watch it. Don't watch it and just imagine it. And, and, and whatever you imagine, <laughs> just, just, like, just like look at the cover and then yeah. just, you're like, yeah. I know exactly what's happened here. Yeah, you don't yeah need that'll to... save me some time. Yeah. Um. Good, right. Well, so that's that's everything, I think. Um, Apart from Sanctimony. Oh, yeah, Sanctimony, the latest UE ball. Yes. Well, not the latest, because it was made in 2000. But, um, yeah, so this was the one... Oh, God, I'm already struggling to remember it. This is the one with Casper Van Dien in it, isn't it? Yes, yes. Uh, So he is... Well, he's meant to be like a Wall Street broker of some sort, isn't he? But our joke was he just looks like a receptionist because he's on his own behind his desk and the people keep coming in through the doors and he keeps being on the phone to people. So he just looks like a receptionist. But anyway, he's also a serial killer as well, isn't he? Um, But of course, even though he'll rock up to the police um, and he'll get get interrogated and stuff, they don't, uh, you know, they can't catch him. It's very much a kind of American psycho type thing. But Casper, it, it, mm, it, it's always going to say Casper Dean, and the, Michael Parry is the detective hunting him down, and Eric Roberts is Michael Parry's superior officer. Eric I Roberts am in the film longer than Eric Roberts. <laughs> um, this, uh, it's yes, yeah, a weird one. This because I, I, I think Casper Van Dien is almost like, even though he wouldn't have seen the performance by Christian Bale in American Psycho, or of course the performance by Robert Pattinson in Cosmopolis, he seems to be kind of um, channeling both of those, but it makes you realize how talented Christian Bale and Robert Pattinson really are, that they're able to make those very emotionally cold characters interesting because Casper Van Dien cannot. 
He mm. cannot make no. that interesting. One of the things we said as we were watching it was just he is delivering these lines like like ranting, you know, like about about capitalism and how it's like eating itself. But it's like, and he's supposed to be this kind of hyper intelligent, always one step ahead kind of uh, serial killer slash investment investor, but he just. It just comes across really awkward. It's very one-dimensional. It comes across as him yeah. just saying stuff. Um, and yeah, the, the whole basis of the film is really tedious. Like the, at the start of it, people are being killed and they're having their like, what was it, ears, eyes, and tongue cut off. Oh, and, yeah. it ta- and it takes a full hour before someone says, "Hang on, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil." Yeah. Oh, yeah. But then that's just dropped. It's completely <laughs> dropped. Like, completely dropped. I don't think you ever actually see any of that as well. So that's a bit weird. No, it's just all done at the newspaper clippings at the start. And then, of course, we actually see him committing murders and he doesn't cut anything off. So he doesn't do anything like that. He doesn't do anything like that at all. So it's like, yeah. okay. There seems to be, there is a running theme in a, a lot of Yui Bull's films, which the ones which aren't like video game um, adaptations. adaptations, that there's this running theme of like the guy the kind of lonely angry guy who is raging at the capitalist world at the kind of consumerist world that we live in and it and then he'll go and kick off basically and kill a bunch of people or whatever and it's like it seems to be this running theme of um i truly believe that you will believes the stuff that he puts in these characters mouths but i also think he's saying like this is the wrong way to express that if you see what i mean mm. like he's so it, it's an almost interesting dynamic that you'd have uh someone who's politically aware and would be saying things you might believe in or um agree with but then going massively overboard and using it as the basis of like a terrorist uh ideology the problem is, is that he's not a good enough writer, especially not at this point, to really convince no. us of that. So when Castle Van Dien is going on about the evils of capitalism and how empty people are uh, and how shallow his girlfriends are and stuff, then I just think he just comes across as just uh, rude and unpleasant. And I don't know why they're not walking away and just saying, I'll see you later, because this is a horrible day. Yeah. Like, why this... are they giving him the time of day? Because... Uh, interesting as well. We, wa- at all. we watched it on Amazon Prime, and it was the uncut version because our friend Chris watched it um, yeah. on DVD. And he was just like saying, "I'm like I'm in the police station," and we're like, "Well, we're still watching a sex scene." Yeah. Um, and and so yeah, if you do want to see like the and again, it, you may as well if you're going to watch it, you may as well see the full thing. So watch the Amazon yeah. Prime version. There are sequences in it again. Yui's obsession with blinds. Uh, the, there's a scene where Michael Parry has like got his feet up on the windowsill in the most uncomfortable position I've ever seen. With the light shining through the blinds. Dominic Purcell, you know, Dominic Purcell is looking at his blinds through a telescope, thinking, "Oh, they're good blinds there." <laughs> um, but there's a bit where, like, um, it just feels like it's probably the earliest Yui Ball film we've seen, and it, and it felt like an embryonic Yui, where yes. all the stuff is explored uh, much more fully and much more interestingly um, in stuff Rampage. like Rampage. Yeah. Um, but then this is just it's very like 2d kind of like oh the he is bad you know this is bad yeah and the way I mean, that the, the, yeah the first rampage was 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 fine didn't really need to make any sequels to it uh and then yeah i to be honest he's 
Yui is probably his best when he's doing serious stuff, to be honest. Like when he's doing stuff like Darfur, Tunnel, Tunnel Rats. Rats. Yeah. Because yeah. they're just competently made dramas, really. Dwelling yeah. on human suffering, yes. But that's his thing, so. Yeah, I mean, anyone who can get a decent performance out of Edward Furlong is, yeah, is a, a winner. But, um, yeah, with stuff like this, it just felt like a, it felt like a kind of, like a half-baked American Psycho, half-baked sort of seven. And, and there's nothing, and again, it's, there's a, Michael, there's a scene in it. Again, it's 20 years old, so we're allowed to talk about it. Where Michael Parry, the whole, his whole character arc is that he is obsessed with finding this killer. He's been on his tail for three years with not a shred of evidence. He is, his, his marriage is on the rocks because he's so dedicated to taking down this murderer who he, he is insistent is Casper Van Dien. And so obviously what happens is they hatch a plan for his like partner um, to sort of, his female, to seduce him and go on a date with him. So what happens then is instead of thinking, if this is a man who was murdered many women and mutilated their bodies yep. and i am and he is certain it is you think he might say oh look i'm going to be outside just down the hall if anything yeah. happens just scream wherever and i'll just burst in and shoot him in the dick or oh, actually I, in the house just hiding well, in, in the, the house, house hiding while she's cooking food for him but no, what actually happens is he has an early night <laughs> and, then, and then finds out that she's been sold the next day and then starts rushing over yeah <laughs> i don't know and the thing is i don't well, that was such a weird scene as well because, of course, it cuts to morning and and Michael Parry is suddenly just running out of the police station or whatever. <laughs> or, I can't remember, maybe out of his apartment. But it's it's not like he suddenly gets any news to suggest that something might have happened to her. Yeah, so he's just running over there. like he. It's like, like he just fell asleep remember. early and forgot <laughs> that he was going to call her or whatever. And he's like, oh, shit, I better get it, over it, there. It, it is from the police station because so he must have said yeah. right you're in this extremely dangerous situation i had an early night woke up kissed his wife goodbye showered changed off to work and as he sat in his office went oh shit that's you can imagine, he, for he, you he must have got he must have got to the police station sat down looked up expecting to see her there and then was like oh yeah god i left her with that serial killer last night didn't i yeah was Parker. it oh no 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 <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, I left her. I left her in the arms of that serial killer. Um, <laughs> um, and all the all of the police station stuff is so weird because, of course, it's meant to be. It's quite like a dark and serious like serial killer movie. But as soon as they're in the police station, it's just like a knockabout comedy, just constant banter. And anything that's happened in the film, they're just taking it really, really lightly. So odd. Yeah, making like the jokes on being killed and murdered and, and like attacked and they and they're just quipping and stuff. And then mm. yeah, and, and also everything's it's all everything in the background is always blurry and it's it's very neon. It's like in the police station everything is blue. When they're at crime scenes, it's all very like and the sequence at the start as well, where Michael Parry is on the hunt for like the serial killer, goes to this kind of underground nightclub and walks past a load of illegal bloodthirsty fights in a barbed wire cage goes downstairs, wanders through loads of tunnels for ages, comes back up and just says, oh, there's nothing, yeah. <laughs> um, you've, just, you've, just, you've just had to like have an awkward phone call covering your ear with your hand because it's so loud because you're next to an illegal cage fight. <laughs> and you're a policeman. <laughs> so you think you would have put two and two together and thought, oh, do you know, I, think, I, I, I don't think this is fully legal. Yeah. Uh, policing. Bad so... Police. I love it's it. Really the most, up with um, 
uh, which ironically is a much later one of the um, coal black present down. Mm. Probably the most average of Yui Ball's films because it, this one just felt like a load of half-formed ideas and yeah. just people being bad at their jobs. And like yes. when the tension comes from just scenes that don't make sense, it's like, well, I don't know. It does um, make it engaging. Yeah. I, I think that it took Yui a long time to really learn his craft when you look at his filmography i mean like the ones we kind of really genuinely like like far cry and darfur um they yes. <laughs> they weren't and rampage they weren't until quite a bit later sort of 10 years on so yeah you can tell that it's yeah you can tell it's an earlier film but yeah. um one of the things um i know going on a bit so i'll wrap this up a little bit but one of the things we said before the film when when we we were watching a load of like test bars with a piercing note over the top oh, of them. And God. Chris was watching the intro because of some weird rights issue with the music. Mm. Uh, so be aware of that if you're watching Amazon. Um, I said, it's weird, Casper Van Dien in 97 was in Starship Troopers and he, he was like really good in that. And then he literally just disappeared. And then you watch this in 2003 years on and you realize it's because in Starship Troopers, he plays this kind of wide-eyed, um, sort of like up and Adam uh, sort yeah. of p- patriot. Uh, but then when you put him in anything else, he can't, he can't portray anything else. No. Because he can't portray any kind of inner emotions. No. It's, there's nothing really behind the eyes at all. No. In this performance. Yeah, um, so that wasn't the best. Um, <clears throat> so what's your film of the week then? Oh, good point, actually. Um, let me have a little look then. What did we cover? Sorry, I'm just getting my notes back up. Yeah, so F- Freeway, Edmund, Crooked House, Desperado Freaks. I did like. I would say Edmund because yeah. it, it it was a film that made me think about it. And you know, whilst I enjoyed Freaks, I, I I liked the fact that I was lying in bed after watching Edmund, just thinking about what I'd seen and taking it all in, and realizing how well balanced it was. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'd say for me, it's Edmund. Okay, um, I'm going to go with Bliss, the vampire movie. Um, oh yes. Uh, Joe, was, Joe, Joe Bagos. Bagos. It's B E G O S. Oh, so Jones. Ah, uh, no, that's not how you spell Jones. All <laughs> oh, right. Um, um, that. Uh, so, <laughs> Joe Jones. Um, <laughs> Joe. Yeah, Joe Bagos. Uh, so, Bliss. Good vampire movie. Violent, slow burning, gritty, grimy. Yeah, good. No, that's good all stuff. of the seven dwarves, I think. <laughs> so yeah well thank you for another another fun filled episode i'll have fun editing this one yeah. and uh have you got anything lined up that you're going to watch over the next few days i have actually i'm oh. uh, just watching because uh, i'm having a bit of a joel schumacher moment thought, obviously. Yeah. um i've watched flatliners too recently to watch it again but i'm watching a time to kill yeah uh which staggeringly is the same writer director team as batman and robin um I'm also. I also watched um, this afternoon. I watched a film called The Gladiator, directed by Abel Ferrara. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we can discuss that. Um, and I'm sure there'll be a few other ones. Oh yeah, we'll, 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 we'll be, there'll be some gold. Oh yeah. Anything that you have got lined up? No. Uh, well, DVD shelf. <laughs> on my VHS shelf. Um, 
No, I probably will watch Transporter because I, I do like I'm in an action yeah. movie mode. I was going to watch uh, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, but I was kind of so kind of just watching Desperado. I was like, nah, do I want to? I mean, I remember like in Desperado more than Once Upon a Time in Mexico. So I don't think I ever watched Once Upon a Time in Mexico for the very reason that I think I tired myself out on Desperado because I watched it so much, <laughs> so much that I thought, well. I, I got the feeling that I'd just watch that once upon a time in Mexico and be disappointed or yeah. not have the same experience, which is probably true. Which, if you can imagine that, after watching Desperado recently, yeah. you're like, I'm really not in the mood for it. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, no, I'll just see what, I'll see what, nature, what nature brings me. Yeah. Okay. Well, right. I love you. I love you. And Hello. I'll leave you. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> Goodbye, Dad. Bye. <laughs>